Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mike and Amit Talk Tech. This is the first episode in a three-part series on underwhelming tech, or at least tech that's currently in some kind of a slumber, some kind of a winter, you know, kind of like AI was for a while before the explosion of generative AI. So these are technologies that have been around for a while, and when they blasted onto the scene, I mean, everybody thought they were going to change the world, and well, they kind of haven't, right? At least not yet. And I think that's the important thing with these technologies. They do still hold a lot of promise. And at some point, like AI, with a new technology bump, a new business model, or a regulatory update, they could really change the world. So the technologies we're going to talk about are 3D printing, nuclear power, and the one we're going to talk about today, and that is quantum computing. So quantum computing, I mean, I've heard about this for a long time. It's kind of a weird one, right? You know, when you hear about quantum computing, people talking about things being in two places at the same time, and they can hold multiple you know, characteristics simultaneously. So could you just walk us through, you know, the basics, you know, what is quantum computing and why is it different than regular computing? It really is a fascinating topic, Mike. We need to rewind quite a way back, right? We need to rewind all the way to quantum physics to understand what's going on, really. And look, I'm not a physics expert. Most of our listeners, I suspect, are not physics experts. But very broadly, if you give a quick and dirty introduction to what's happening, we have the classical physics, the Newtonian physics, the way things like gravity, to a certain extent, electricity and magnetism play a part. And we thought we had that all figured out. But about 100 years ago, maybe 125 years ago, folks discovered that when we go down all the way to the molecular level, things are completely different. And that's where the whole quantum realm or the, or the world of quantum comes about. The usual rules do not apply. Physics as we know it kind of sort of breaks down, or at least the Newtonian classical physics breaks down at these sizes and a completely new exactly like you said, weird, almost spooky kinds of physics takes over. So for our purposes, here are two interesting, cool, weird, spooky things that happen at the quantum level, right? The first thing is, is that a quantum bit or a qubit, which is the very basis for quantum computings, can do two things at the same time. It can be two things at the exact same time, kind of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? So you know how a normal bit in a computer can either take the value of zero or take the value of one. Quantum bits have something called superposition, which can be both zero and one at the same time. Don't ask me how they do it. That's what they tell me. They tell me that this is how they do it. The second thing is even spookier. It's even more weird. So let's say you take two of these qubits, you kind of pair them up. So it's like a physics process to kind of pair them up. And then you send them out and they're on different sides of the planet, right? Let's assume they're on different ends of this particular planet. One is in the United States, the other is in China, for example. And if you've paired them, you change one of them on one side of the planet. Instantaneously, the other guy on the other side of the planet also changes. This is completely weird and spooky. It's called entanglement, and this is another really, really curious property that these qubits demonstrate. So the basic idea behind quantum computing is, can we actually leverage this? Can we somehow harness these two properties because they allow us to do something 
which is potentially incredible. So first, let's talk about superposition, okay? Remember, these things can be both zero and one at the same time. What does that mean? It means a processing power that has potentially exponential levels of strength than a normal computer. A normal computer with one bit basically can do one thing at a time. It can either be a zero or it can be a one. This thing with one bit can be both a zero and a one. So it's already twice as powerful. So two of these are four times as powerful. Three of these is two to the power of three, eight times as powerful. And this whole thing goes up exponentially. So the first thing that a quantum computer can do can do things that a normal computer can do, but absurdly powerfully, exponentially more powerful, which is what Google demonstrated in 2019, for instance. You know, is this a solution to a problem that we don't really have? You know, when you look at supercomputers, traditional supercomputer computers today, they're pretty powerful, aren't they? Is it going to make a, a real practical difference? Potentially, yes. So in 2019, when Google first demonstrated, this was the first time in history that we actually showed this, this quantum computer, which is still then a theory, can actually work. They managed to solve a problem using quantum computing in 200 seconds, which would have otherwise taken 10,000 years to do on a supercomputer. The second part of your question, Mike, is actually extremely, extremely powerful, which is, that's cool, but is that practical? And the answer is, I don't think so, not yet. And I think that's been the roadblock of quantum computing. By the way, the fact that they're entangled means I can have two supercomputers on quantum running on other sides of the planet, each processing things in parallel, which is, again, extremely powerful. But Mike, the, the real question, I guess, that we are struggling with is, so what? I mean, what kind of problems do we have today sure. which require the use of something like this? And I don't think from two perspectives, obviously, both from the hardware perspective as well as the software perspective, we've really figured this out. We've really not figured this out. Well, what about AI? I mean, AI, of course, very hot topic today. You need a lot of compute, a lot of data. It would appear potentially to be a good use case for, for, for quantum computers. It is. It really is with a big if. And the big if is, can we actually build a quantum computer that can run the AI models, the neural networks that we have today? So our listeners may re recall our episode when we discussed AI and when we discussed generative AI, that a key driver of what we call AI today is nothing but computing power. So obviously, this potentially gives us scaled up exponentially more computing power than we've ever had. The problem is, this thing is just absurdly sensitive. It's sensitive to literally everything in the environment. So building one of these is incredibly hard. Plus, you need to keep them cooled at impractically low temperatures for this to work. So this is not coming to your laptop or my laptop anytime soon, Mike. So we're still stuck, quote unquote, with running our AI models on the good old fashioned chips that we currently have. Right, so they're not very practical, but they do exist, right? I mean, you said that Google has one. I was reading recently that the Chinese has fired one up. That's 176 qubits, which is a lot. IBM has a few of them. Even the, the US is thinking seriously enough about this, that they're restricting investment, right? It's not just AI, but also, you know, they don't want to be exporting quantum computing infrastructure to places like China. These things do exist. What are they actually doing with them at the moment? For the most part, currently, we are doing something extremely basic. We are trying to figure out what new languages, what new compilers 
what new kinds of algorithms we need in order to leverage this. I mean, some of the problems that we have with quantum are hardware issues, things like, okay, how do we isolate these qubits so that they're not disturbed by literally anything around them? But some of the other more pressing issues are, hey, what kind of interfaces are we going to have with them? What kind of user interface, UI, which of course is obviously well-developed for the regular computing, are we going to have? What kind of computer languages might we need for this? Because now you're talking about a completely different way of programming. Our entire programming is based on either being zero or one at a given time. And now you're telling me it can be both. Right? What are the standards and protocols? How do we get the IBM computer and the ones that the Chinese are building and potentially the one that Google is working on? How do we get them to talk to each other? What are the internal machine languages that these use? Is there a standard protocol? So it's a little bit of the Wild West out there currently. Anyone with enough wealth and enough resources in terms of skill sets can actually try and build this because it has the potential to be powerful. But we really don't have fixed standards. We don't know what we're doing with this. We're kind of inventing these things from the ground up almost uh, as we go along. And, and if I were to look at one of these things, a quantum computer today, what would it look like? It would basically be a really, really massive room, kind of like what the, our computers looked like in the 40s and 50s. You must remember the pictures, right? This entire room is a computer and this massive cupboard-like thing can store a whopping 10 megabytes or 10 kilobytes of data and those kinds of things. So these things have, first of all, they've got massive, massive, massive cooling stations because you've got to keep them, like we mentioned, at absurdly low temperatures. They've got to basically be cryogenic for them to even do something close to quantum. The second thing is they have to be completely isolated from the environment. So vibrations, uh, sounds, temperature changes, anything completely messes up the qubits. So the actual brain, quote unquote, it's not a chip, but the brain of the quantum computer has to be incredibly, incredibly sensitively isolated. And after all that, we figure out exactly what we do with it. So it's a while away, I think, before we do something practical with this. So it's a while away, but how long? You know, considering that we've been talking about these things for a while and, you know, there are a few of them out there, but as you said, even a little bit of noise puts them off, any kind of vibration, changes in the heat. They're not very scalable. They have quite large hardware constraints. They're extremely expensive. How long do you think it's going to be before we're going to see these quantum computers in practical use? My guesstimate is 10 to 15 years. I'm saying not before this. And the reason I say this is, I suspect we're going to need new kinds of materials. So this is going to be a material science issue. We're definitely going to need to figure out new way of fabricating the chips. We discussed this in our episode in of Moore's Law. Again, our readers, our, our listeners might remember this. The kinds of chips that we currently manufacture, which are kind of locked in because of Moore's Law, are not going to work for this. So, and we, then you're going to figure out, have to figure out the software issues. Look, the other issue is a little bit of a network effects issue, the classic chicken and egg. Because this thing is so esoteric right now, there just aren't enough programmers. So we're going to need to scale the programming skill sets on this, which will happen, which will happen, but which is why I say 10 to 15 years before we start seeing the impact of these in real life at a reasonable level of scale. Now, in previous episodes, we've looked at other technologies that have also been hyped, but haven't quite lived up to the hype. You know, we talked about metaverses, we've talked about Web3, we've talked about autonomous driving. You know, where would you put quantum computing on that scale between sort of hype and reality? Is there, 
Is there a reason to be excited about this or is this just kind of a pipe dream that's always going to be just in the research labs and the realm of the tech giants, but not really practical for the rest of us? How optimistic are you about quantum computing? I'm actually optimistic because I think what has happened now is we're at a stage where this thing has moved from a science problem to an engineering problem. What we're struggling with today is an engineering problem. You know, how do we cool this? How do we make sure that this doesn't need that much cooling? Or how do we isolate this? Obviously, there are some science involved in this, but these essentially very quickly become engineering problems. I think by and large, we are reasonably good at cracking engineering problems. If there were issues with fundamental science, I'd be extremely concerned. I would call this much more of a hype. I personally do think this will have impact on us at scale. I do think in areas like cryptography, like optimization, like in discovery of new drugs, you know, in cracking the uh, polymers and cracking the structure of proteins, this thing is going to be immensely helpful. So there are practical applications to this. I think it'll just take us a long time to crack the engineering, 10 to 15 years, like I said, because it's that hard a problem. It's kind of like sending humans to the moon, which took us a decade. And so if you combine that, you know, the power of quantum computing with the intelligence, although probably not the right word to use, of generative AI, uh, you could imagine a lot of the, you know, the world's really tricky problems could be, could be solved a lot quicker. Indeed, yes, right? I mean, the speed of computing or the power of computing is one of the three crucial legs on which all machine learning today stands on. And if we actually endow it with superpowers of quantum computing, then I really do think we could potentially do a lot of good things. I don't want to talk about the bad things. I do believe that we can do a tremendous amount of, of good things with this. And what are the other two legs? Would be the amount of data that we need to actually train this, as well as the really smart algorithms that we, uh, that we come up with. Fantastic. Amit, thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Mike and Amit Talk Tech. I'm Mike Wade, and I'm with Amit Joshi, and we are both professors at the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland. And if you haven't done so already, please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And to learn more about IMD's programs for managers and executives, go to imd.org. Thanks for listening. And tune in next time when we talk about 3D printing. <laughs>